you please turn back now with me to Job 33. title of the message, if you have an outline, is A God Unlike Men. In Sunday school, two weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago now, we spoke concerning the disciples' responsibility to know God. We're in a series on discipleship, and we spoke about how important it is that we know God. We mentioned that the knowledge of God, both His character and His Word, is essential to being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, as we spoke about this, we mentioned some of the dangers rooted in not knowing God, but still attempting to worship God. And as we spoke of these many dangers, there's one in particular that I would like to remind you of, for those of you that were in Sunday school. If not, one that you can think about uh, in regard to those who fail to know God, but still seek to worship God. And that danger is that when we seek to worship God without a knowledge of God, we fall prey to the manipulation of God's character. Whereby, because we need or we desire to worship God, but we don't know that God, we form God in our own image. We make a God that we are calling the one true God, and He conforms to our reason, and He conforms to our understanding, But because we don't know the God of the Bible, he doesn't necessarily conform to it. We don't know God, but we want to serve God, so we make God in our own image and according to our ideas, thus creating a God, a false God, that we perceive to be the true God. Now, let me give you an example of how this might play out. There are many, we could all give examples of people who seek to worship God without the knowledge of God, and so they pervert the character of God. But let me just give you one. You're telling someone about God, and they ask you this. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? Have you ever heard that before? How can a loving God send a man to hell? And they they would say then something like this. I don't want to serve a God like that. I refuse to serve a God like that. So they reject your God. And they go down the street to some church or to some philosophy where they can believe that God doesn't send people to hell. And they can be happy in their conception of a God that loves man, therefore does not send men to hell. And so what they've done is because they have a perverted understanding of what love is, a confused understanding of what love is, and a confused understanding of God's character and God's justice and God's righteousness and God's holiness, and they don't understand how those two mingle together, They create a God in their own image, according to their own understanding, a God that might have some of the characteristics of Jehovah, but doesn't do things like send people to hell. Because that would be a mean God. And they don't want to serve a mean God, so they create God in their own image. They manipulate the character of God and are now worshiping a false God in the name of the true God. There are many ways in which man has done this, mankind can do this, and this is one of the results of serving God without a proper knowledge of God. Often throughout this series, I have quoted to you Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. I haven't always given you the reference, but Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 say this, For my thoughts are are not your thoughts, saith the Lord, neither are your ways my ways. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We've quoted this so many times for a reason in the book of Job. Job is a difficult book to read. It's a difficult series to preach. Because the book of Job stretches us to the very limits of our understanding regarding the character of God and his purposes upon this earth. It stretches us because we do see a righteous man that is suffering. It stretches us because Job doesn't have the answers he seeks. It stretches us because his friends seem to understand the character of God, and yet they're saying things that are contrary to what Job is doing. And Job is a man that we know from the beginning of Job is righteous, is innocent before God. And at the end of the book, we'll see that in fact, God condemns Job's three friends for their advice. And so we have to carefully weigh what's going on in the book of Job. We have to carefully understand the arguments as they're being made. And we have to recognize that God's ways are not our ways and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And if we're not careful, if we're not submissive to the teachings of the word of God above even our own understanding, cultural ideas, philosophies, and norms... We will begin to shape God in our image, after our mind, instead of shaping our mind according to the word of God. And this is, to one degree or another, what Job's three companions had done in chapters 4 through 31 of Job. As we see those discourses going back and forth between Job and his companions, these were men who took things that they understood about God and made logical or cultural inferences about God based upon what they knew, and in doing so, they changed God's character. We know that. We've talked about that quite a bit. Well, Elihu began speaking last week. Last week's message was about wisdom. He began expounding upon wisdom in chapter 32, and he'll continue in chapters 33 through 37 speaking. So chapters 33 through 37 are all this fourth man, this man Elihu, As we continue reading in chapter 33 today, the frustration of Elihu will will be, I mean, you could cut it with a butter knife. It'll be palatable. You can sense the frustration that is in his heart as it comes out of his lips as he speaks to Job and to Job's companions. I'm going to summarize a little bit as I typically do in, in this series because we just don't have enough time to always read the whole passage. I'll summarize a little bit of what's happening in Job 33. In verses 1 through 7, Elihu tells Job to prepare himself. Prepare himself for the answers he's seeking from God. Many times now, Job has stated that he wished God would just come down and answer Job's complaints. Elihu says here that he's about to give God's answer. That he's about to answer in such a way that he feels confident he is speaking the very words that God would speak. So Job had better listen closely. Now Elihu is not claiming a moral superiority to Job. He is not claiming an intellectual superiority to Job. We see that in verses 1 through 7, if you read through it, that he is not attempting to announce himself as better than Job. But what we do see is Elihu stating that he has a better understanding of what is going on here And he is confident that his words are completely in line with the truth of God's word. Now in verses 8 through 11, Elihu summarizes Job's complaint. Let's look at it together. Chapter 33 of Job, beginning in verse 8. Surely thou hast spoken in my hearing, 
And I have heard the voice of thy words saying, I am clean without transgression. I am innocent. Neither is there iniquity in me. Behold, he findeth occasions against me. He counteth me for his enemy. He putteth my feet in the stocks. He marketh all my paths. And this is indeed an accurate rendering of Job's complaint. Job is stating, has stated numerous times now that he is innocent before God, but that God has made him his enemy. And that God has been uh, chastening Job even though Job is innocent. But notice Elihu's response in chapter 33, verse 12. Behold, in this thou art not just, I will answer thee that God is greater than man. I will answer thee that God is greater than man. Today, as we look into the scriptures, we're going to see three ways that, even though we may not understand it completely, God is indeed unlike men. Three ways that God is not like us. And th- this is the reason why. As, as you, you think about my introduction this morning, and think about the, this reality of the ways that God is unlike man, here's what we need to remember. Because there are ways in which God is not like us, If we are attempting to explain God with logic and reason, even if that logic and reason is contrary to the word of God, then we are forming a false God in our image. We are erecting a God according to our understanding when God has announced himself to be a God whose ways are not like our ways and thoughts are not like our thoughts. And as we continue, we'll understand that this doesn't mean we can't know God. But what it does mean is we need to be careful to know him properly. Three ways that even though we may not understand it completely, God is unlike man. First way that we'll see this morning in verses 13 through 22, God is unlike man in authority. God is unlike man in authority. Elihu begins his correction of Job and his companions by focusing on the understanding of a man as it relates to the workings of God. Look with me at verse 13. Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of his matters. Elihu asks this basically. Does God, Job, does God answer to you? Does God answer to you, Job? Well, as we answer that question in our minds, the answer is obviously no. The Almighty God does not answer to his creation. He doesn't answer to you. He doesn't answer to me. He doesn't answer to a denomination. He doesn't answer to a church. He's God. But you know, often this is how we try to treat God, isn't it? That if God doesn't give us an explanation that is sufficient for us, that if God doesn't come and make himself clear to us, then he's in the wrong. Have you ever had somebody, I was talking to a man not too long ago, witnessing to him and He said, well, if God's real, why doesn't he just make himself known? And we search the scriptures. We read Romans chapter 1 and we recognize that creation testifies of God. That conscience testifies of God. That the very word of God testifies of God. And we can boldly and confidently say that God has made himself known. But, you know, when we have the attitude that God answers to me, that means God has to make himself known to me in the way that I understand and I want. Because God answers to me. And so when something bad happens, God, if you don't explain to me why that happened, then I'm not going to believe in you. Then I'm not going to follow you. 
And now we have just decided that God answers to us. But just because God does not answer to us, or to any man for that matter, it does not mean that God has failed to communicate with us. In verses 14 through 22 of this passage, Elihu lists some of the ways that God communicates with man. Some of the ways in which God tells man what he's doing, and sometimes even why he's doing it. And as Elihu goes down this list, which we'll look at in a moment, his emphasis is not necessarily upon the fact that God does communicate with man, because there's no argument from Job and his companions that God communicates with man. But more so, he's focusing upon the reality that even though God communicates with man, man doesn't always listen. Man doesn't always understand. And there are certain things that man cannot understand. In verses 15 through 17, Job refers to visions and dreams. He says, God, uh, in verse 14, For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet a man perceiveth it not. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falleth upon men and slumberings upon the bed, then he openeth the ears of men and sealeth their instruction that he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. So God does, in uh, Elihu's example here, speak to man, and he's referring to visions and dreams here, the idea of direct revelation from God, something that would have been very familiar to them at this time in the scriptures. And it's a time whereby God explains his actions, but notice he also says in verse 17 that he withdraws from man his purpose. That sometimes he tells man what's going on, but other times he withdraws his purpose from man for a reason. To hide pride from man. He withdraws from man his purpose. In other words, God hides his purpose from men so that men don't get proud. So that men don't take things upon themselves. Whenever I think of something like this, I think of Abraham. Because I oftentimes relate to Abraham in a particular way. God comes to Abraham and he tells Abraham, I'm going to give you a seed. I'm going to give you a child. And that child will become as the sand of the sea, as the stars of the heaven for multitude. And as Abraham heard that, many of you have heard me relay this before. God told Abraham his purpose. But Abraham was worried. See, his wife was old and barren. And he was old. And he didn't understand how God's purpose would be worked out. And so he said, well, God's promised me a seed. My wife is barren. And he and Sarah got together and said, well, Let's just take Sarah's handmaid, Hagar, and let's have a raise up a seed through her. And that will be the seed that God has given. See, because God told Abraham his purpose, Abraham took it upon himself to fulfill that purpose in a way that wasn't according to God's plan. And so Abraham has Ishmael through Hagar. And then as Ishmael grows, God says, God, isn't Ishmael your seed? And God says, no, I'm going to give you a seed through Sarah. And Abraham says, would to God that Ishmael could be the seed. But that's not God's purpose. That's not God's plan. That's not how he was going to bring it to pass. And so the scriptures say that sometimes he withdraws from man his purpose to hide man's pride so that man doesn't take it upon himself to fulfill God's purpose, as we so often do. Verse 18 refers to divine protection. Look what it says. He keepeth back his soul from the pit, 
and his life from perishing by the sword. Man can recognize God through direct revelation. Man can recognize God through protection as he sees God's goodness. In verses 19 through 22, notice what else he says. He is chastened also with pain upon his bed and the multitude of his bones with strong pain so that his life abhorreth bread and his soul dainty meat. His flesh is consumed away that it cannot be seen and his bones that were not seen stick out. This is specifically for Job's benefit. That Elihu says, you know, Job, sometimes God speaks through direct revelation. But even then he withholds things according to his good pleasure. Sometimes God speaks through provision and protection. And Job, sometimes God speaks through affliction. Sometimes God teaches through affliction. I think this church in particular can understand the ways in which God teaches through affliction. Many, many men and women in this church have gone through difficult times in the past year. Be it a loss of a job, be it health difficulties, be it the various trials and tribulations that we go through, this church has been through a lot. And I believe this church can testify of what Elihu is saying here in verses 19 through 22, that God does indeed often reveal himself through affliction. Last week in our 4th of July message, we talked about the tendency we have due to our culture as citizens of the United States of America to treat God as we might treat our government. And therefore, we assert an ungodly level of spiritual independence over God. Because we are very independent people by nature, sometimes we carry that independence over to our own spiritual lives. And so we, in the form of serving God, actually assert our independence over God. In just the same way, because of our cultural background and understanding, we can falter in this idea of understanding God as well. You know, we live in a country where we have elected representatives. As such, we have men and women from the state of Minnesota who have been elected by the people of Minnesota to represent us on a national level. Now, for the state of Minnesota, that's not very encouraging, at least to people um, of our philosophy and understanding. However, they are indeed elected representatives and their job is to represent us in Washington. We have a president who is in fact an elected representative. The United States has elected him to represent us to the world and that is his duty. Now, I know that this breaks down as we think of all the corruption today in government and in society. Were they duly represent, uh, Were they duly elected? We don't know. Do they actually have our best interests in mind? No, they don't. I know that. But, but take with me the concept of elected representation here. This is a concept that we as Americans have ingrained into us. And the fact that they are our representatives means that they are accountable to us, correct? They answer to us. In theory, they are accountable for their actions. And if we don't like what they're doing, we can elect them out of office. We can even go so far as to impeach the president if he has done something worthy. And so we can hold our representatives accountable for their actions. Now, think about the continuing of our culture 
as we think about this idea of representatives, our culture has degraded to the point where parenting is now seen as a representative process. Whereby, as parents, we work with the children to see that everyone is happy and everyone's perceived needs are met. Whereby, if a child is not happy with what their parents are doing, according to modern culture, that parent must then answer to the child for their needs to be met. And as you think about all of these representative forms in one way or another, and the way in which culture has gone, and uh, be it for good or for ill, what this means that United States citizens in the 21st century, perhaps unlike any other group in the history of the world, have little to no basis with which to understand the concept of a supreme leader. The concept of a sovereign leader that is accountable to no man for the decisions that he makes and the reasons why he makes them. Consider, not long ago, actually it's still happening in many countries around the world, but consider the British Empire. Consider Charlemagne's empire. Consider uh, Constantine's empire in Rome. Consider the Persian empire. Consider the Babylonian empire. Consider even Israel at the time of the monarchy. You had kings. You had Caesars. You had emperors. These men had complete sovereign control. No one could question their authority. No one could question their actions. And no one could hold him accountable for anything. Now, we as American citizens, as we think about the cultural idea of no accountability, we bristle, do we not? I bristle. When I think of a leader that has absolutely no accountability to the people, I bristle at that. I don't like that idea. But, this is who God is. God is supreme. God is Sovereign. God has no accountability. No one holds him accountable. And we'll see, as we continue in point two, that with God, this is a good thing. Now, with mankind, man is corrupt. Man is sinful. Man is man. So it's not necessarily a good thing not to have accountability. But with God, this is okay. This is, in fact, good. And we need to be careful that we don't take our cultural prejudices and carry them into our interaction with God, whereby we don't give God supreme authority, or we feel as though God ought to answer to someone because of our culture that bristles at the idea of sovereign leadership. So we need to be careful, because we have a God that's unlike man in authority. He is, he is sovereign in his authority, and there are none that answer to him. Second, Today, in verses 22 and 20 through 33, we have a God that is unlike men in grace and mercy. A God unlike men in grace and mercy. We'll get into the text again in just a moment. But I'd like you to do something for me and with me today. I'd like for a moment for you to place yourself in God's eyes. See the world through God's eyes. Place yourself in God's shoes. I'm not trying to be sacrilegious here. I'm not trying to elevate you to the level of God or, or lower God to the level of you. But I'd like you to use your sanctified imagination with me for a moment. Imagine creating mankind. Sinless perfection. Unconfirmed. 
holiness, but sinless perfection nonetheless. Between you and this creation, there is complete fellowship. You walk with that creation in the cool of the day. You love this creation. You care for this creation. You give this creation a place of beauty and comfort to live. You surround this creation with sights, sounds, colors, smells, tastes, all of which were made for His pleasure. You feed Him. You even give Him a helpmeet, a companion, so that He's not alone. Now imagine this creation rebels against you. He literally refuses your sovereign rule over him. And after he refuses your rule, after he refuses your sovereignty, you clothe him. You continue to provide for him. Certainly there are consequences for his actions, but you don't destroy him. You have grace. You have mercy upon him. After all, they have rebelled. You have shown grace. Surely now they'll recognize how good you are and they'll submit to you. Well, the generations pass. Things get worse. Men begin to worship gods that they make themselves. They begin to worship themselves as God. They worship one another as God. They scorn you as creator. They despise you as creator. They ignore you as creator. What do you do? What would you, as God, do? I know what I would do. I'd hit the reset button. And you say, well, pastor, God did hit the reset button. Remember Noah? But no, he didn't. See, because Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Sure, God destroyed the, the culture and the degree to which it had degraded. But God allowed a man that still had a sin nature to live on. God didn't reset everything. This creation is still touched by the effects of sin. Mankind still has a sin nature. God had enough mercy to allow mankind to continue in spite of mankind's rebellion. He sustained the world in spite of the curse of sin. He sustained man in spite of his refusal to submit. He gives man breath. He allows food to grow. He brings the seasons. He withholds catastrophes. And even more than these, even more than this, God set out not just to sustain man, but to then make himself known to man. So that man would not just be able to live his physical life, but man might have the opportunity to restore the spiritual relationship that he lost with God through his rebellion. You wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have done that. You know, the old adage goes, a serious problem is a problem that happens to me. A minor problem is a problem that happens to someone else. As we think about that statement, it might be somewhat trite. And you might say, well, pastor, that's terrible. You're right, it is terrible. But it's kind of true, isn't it? Things are always heightened when they happen to us. Problems are always more severe when we're going through them ourselves. When someone else is going through a hard time, 
It's easy to say, hey, I'll pray for you, to open the Bible and say, these are the verses, just memorize these verses and read through these verses and God will get you through. But when it happens to us, there's no consolation. When it happens to us, it seems trite for someone just to say, well, you know, I'm thinking of you. Because it's a big problem when it's happening to me. It's, it's a problem when it's happening to you, but certainly not as much. See, with a human mind such as this, with a human mind that is prone to selfishness, even when we know that we don't like the selfishness, is it any surprise that we as created beings would see the bad things that happen to us, that God allows to happen to us, but fail to see all the blessings and the good things that God has given to us? And as I've given this illustration today of you putting your place in, you putting yourself in God's shoes, what I'd like for us to see is that we have a God that is unlike you and I in grace and mercy. We have a God that is not partial. We have a God that is not fickle. He's a God that's unlike us. And that's what Elihu is going to continue to say here in verses 22 through 33. Though God is a God that is supreme, He does not answer to us, nor does He have any obligation to us. He has in His goodness both blessed us in so many ways, and has even made it possible for us once again to be restored in our relationship with Him. He hasn't just allowed us to live out our lives. He has given us the fullness of life through His Son, Jesus Christ. That is a good God. And this is what Elihu states. Look at verse 22 with me. Excuse me, beginning verse 23. If there be a messenger with him, an interpreter, one among a thousand to show unto man his uprightness, then he is gracious unto him and saith, deliver him from, the go- from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be fresher than a child's. He shall return to the day of his youth. He shall pray unto God. And he will be favorable unto him. And he shall see his face with joy. And he will render unto man his righteousness. If he looketh upon men. And if any say I have sinned and perverted that which was right. And it profiteth me not. He will deliver his soul from going into the pit. And his life shall see the light. Lo all these things God worketh God oftentimes. Excuse me with man. To bring back his soul from the pit. To be enlightened with the light of the living. Mark well, O Job, hearken unto me. Hold thy peace, and I will speak. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify thee. If not, hearken unto me. Hold thy peace, and I shall teach thee wisdom. God has sent us his word to tell us of himself and his expectations. Elihu says, if there was just one among a thousand that could deliver to you the revelation of God, that could be the intercessor, the messenger, verse 23. If there was one among a thousand to show man God's uprightness and to show man his own need, then God has been gracious. Then God has been good. This is a a Hebrew, a Hebrewism as I like to call them, a Hebrew figure of speech. One among a thousand would mean what we might say today is one in a million. If there was but one intercessor between God and man, God is gracious. Well, we know that there is, don't we? There is an intercessor between God and man. And there was even on the day of Job, though that intercessor had not yet come and given his life, yet that intercessor was still very much active in the affairs of men. 
the Word of God incarnate, the second person of the Trinity, he, he whom we know as Jesus Christ. And Elihu says, if there is but one, God has been gracious because he has found a ransom. God has given a ransom to deliver us from the pit. God has opened his ears to hear our prayer. God has offered every man his forgiveness to the extent that any man who accepts the revelation of God's word can be saved from the penalty of his sins. That's what he says in verses 27 and 28. He looketh upon men, and if any say I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profiteth me not, he will deliver his soul from going into the pit, and his life shall see the light. God will deliver the man who is humble who is meek. Jesus Christ said it this way, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so I thank God he's not like me. Because if God were like me, if God were like even the greatest among us, we would all have been destroyed a long time ago. We would all have had no hope. But see, God is not like men. And we need to be careful lest we seek to frame God in our image, lest we seek to form God according to our understanding, because when we do so, we manipulate the character of God from what he presents himself to be. Jeremiah expressed God's character this way. We've memorized it a couple months ago. Jeremiah 3, 22 and 23. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. God is unlike men in authority. Thank the Lord he's unlike men in authority. God is unlike men in grace and mercy. I thank God he is not like us in grace and mercy. Third and finally, as Elihu now turns to Job's companions, we'll see that God is unlike men in judgment. We know the exact same way we know that every time Job's companions are speaking or Job is speaking to his companions, we know because the pronoun reference changes. In our King James Bible, it goes from second person singular to second person plural. It goes from thou to ye. One of the tremendous benefits of the King James Bible is our ability to know pronoun reference because of the way the translators did it. And so in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 34, Elihu says this to Job's companions. Verse 2, Hear my words, O ye wise men, and give ear unto me, ye that have knowledge. For the ear trieth words, and the mouth tasteth meat. Let us choose to us judgment. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job hath said, I am righteous, and God hath taken away my judgment. Should I lie against my right? My wound is incurable without transgression. What man is like Job who drinketh up scorning like water, which goeth in company with the workers of iniquity and walketh with wicked men? For he hath said, It profiteth a man nothing that he should delight himself with God. Therefore hearken unto me, ye men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. For the work of a man shall he render unto him and cause every man to find according to his ways. God is unlike men in authority. God is unlike men in grace and mercy. Third and finally, God is unlike men in judgment. Now in chapter 34, Elihu describes God to be perfectly just, 
perfectly righteous, and perfectly holy. He states in verse 12, look at it with me. Yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert justice, judgment, excuse me. God does not pervert judgment or do wickedly. But for all the perfection that is God, we recognize that we fall so short of that perfection. We are not perfect, are we? There's not a man, not a woman, not a child in this room who is perfect, but God is. There's not a man, there's not a woman, there's not a child in this room who's perfectly just, who's perfectly righteous, who's perfectly holy. God is. Thus Elihu asks, look with me in verse 17. Shall even he that hateth right govern, and wilt thou condemn him that is most just? Is it fit to say to a king, thou art wicked, and to princes ye are ungodly? How much less to him that accepteth not the person of princes, nor regardeth the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. He continues, look at verse 23. There is no darkness nor shadow of death where the workers of iniquity may hide themselves, for he will not lay upon man more than right that he should enter into judgment with God. Let me explain to you what Elihu is saying here, and then we'll put these pieces together. His argument is as follows. God is perfect in understanding and in judgment. Man is not perfect in any capacity. And yet Job's three friends are presuming to judge Job's heart in the very same way that God would judge Job's heart. Do we presume to think that we know a man's heart? Do we presume to think that we have the ability, much less the authority, to judge the sins and intentions and motives of a man's heart? That's what Elihu is saying here. God is judge. And you three companions of Job, you are not judge. Now, I'm going to speak very carefully here because the biblical concept of judgmentalism is so misunderstood and misapplied today, and I want us to be careful. See, humans are inherently judgmental. We are a judgmental people because when we judge others, we feel better about ourselves. If we can look at somebody and see them doing something that's perceived to be worse than us, then we feel better about what we're doing. If we can compare ourselves among ourselves, then we can get ourselves to rank pretty high up on the echelon of good people. And we like this. And so we are inherently judgmental people. And judgmentalism is absolutely sinful. But what I want to make clear today is that there is a difference between judging a heart and discerning an action. We might say judging a heart or judging an action. According to God's word, it is not wrong for us to denounce open sin. It is not wrong for us to read the word of God which says what is sin in the ears of hearers. As a matter of fact, it is expected of us that men would recognize that they have sinned before an almighty God. It is expected of us that men would recognize that all have fallen short of the glory of God. If God's word states that something is sinful and someone is engaged in that action, we are justified in identifying that sinful action. And particularly in the context of believers, God's word has given the church great authority among the believers to pinpoint open sin. Second Thessalonians 3 verse 6 says this, 
Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. He goes on to say in verse 14, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him, that he may be ashamed. This is Paul telling the church to withdraw themselves from Christians who are walking in a manner that's not right according to God in order that they may be ashamed by being removed from the body of Christ, from the fellowship of the body of Christ. Not from salvation, but from the fellowship of the body. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 11, Paul says this, But now I have written unto you, not to keep company if any man is called a brother, be a fornicator, or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, with such an one know not to eat. Again, Paul is calling the church to separate themselves from one who claims to be a member of the body of Christ, but is not walking orderly. Now, Paul would continue to say in 1 Corinthians 5.11 that we can't do this with unbelievers. Because if we do do this with unbelievers, then we have to separate ourselves from the very people we're trying to reach. That an unbeliever is not a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, that an unbeliever is not going to regard the, the, the word of God, and so why should we expect them to live according to the word of God? Now, that doesn't mean we can't point out sin, but we do not withdraw ourselves or seek discipline against those who are unbelievers in open sin because they're unbelievers. They're they're children of Satan, as the scripture describes them. They're children of darkness. Why should we expect them to live in the light? Unless they come to the light. And so, to point out sinful actions is entirely different than accusing a man of having a sinful heart motive. We see a man who claims to be a believer and he's doing something that is obviously wrong. We point out that sinful action. We go through the steps as Jesus Christ commanded us to do where we go and we confront him then we confront him in a group then if he won't repent we bring it before the church and if he still will not repent then we remove him from fellowship the biblical order of church discipline with unbelievers we live the word of God we read the word of God we speak the word of God the word of God convicts their hearts and shows them that they are indeed sinners in need of salvation in need of God's, Christ's righteousness. But pointing out sinful actions or living in such a way that other people's sinful actions are exposed is so different from judging or accusing a man of a sinful heart motive. It is not outside of a believer's authority and even responsibility to call sin what it is, but it is outside of our authority to denounce a heart motive with which a man may act. And this is the problem that Elihu had with Job's companions. It was not wrong for them to denounce open sin. The problem was they saw no open sin in Job's life. They're denouncing Job and his heart motive. Excuse me. Even though they can't see Job's heart. They are accusing him of sin even though they haven't seen sin. And this is judgmentalism. And this is wrong. And this is what Elihu is saying. Look, three companions of Job. You aren't Job's judge. God is. You aren't Job's judge. 
God is. See, the reality of the matter is that only God can see the heart. So if you and I are judging a man's intentions or his motives in his actions and thus denouncing him as sinful because of what we believe his intentions to be or believe his motives to be, then we are in the wrong. Only God has the authority to see, the ability to see a man's heart and the authority to judge a man's heart. On Judgment Day, none of you will stand before me and answer for what you do in this life. There's not a man or woman and child in this room that will stand before me and answer to me for your heart motives in your singing or in your memorization or in coming to church on any given Sunday. You will never stand before me and answer to me. You will stand before God because I can't know what's in your heart. I don't know if you're just here to check it off your list. I don't know if you're here because you think that coming to church will actually earn you salvation. I don't know if you're here with a right heart attitude whereby you desire to worship and serve the Lord and be among his people and you have come with that proper heart. I don't know. I can't know. And I cannot judge you for your motives because I can't see your heart. And if I try, I'm in the wrong. But you will stand before God one day. And you will answer to God for what you did and why you did it. And that's what Elihu is saying. He's saying, look, companions. And that's why he said at the very end of verse thir- or chapter 33, Job, if you will just give me another minute before you speak, I'm going to justify you. He said um, in verse 32, 31 and 32, Mark well, O Job, hearken unto me. Hold thy peace, and I will speak. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify thee. Job, what I'm going to do is I'm about to tell your companions that they have no right to judge you because they don't see open sin. So how dare they denounce you for sin that they don't see? How dare they denounce your heart motive and say that you must have something wrong even though they can't see sin? We do it all the time, though. I've given you the example time and again, and I'm not going to give it to you again, though I want to, of driving a car. And when someone cuts you off, we always presume we know their motive. Remember that example. Remember that illustration. It's exactly what we do. We judge people's motives, even though we don't know them. And we denounce them for their heart motive, not just for their actions. We have no authority to judge why a person goes where he goes or why he does what he does. We cannot judicially impose ungodliness upon the heart of a man simply because he doesn't think the way we think, know the things we know, or do the things we do. And we must be careful. We call sin what it is. We denounce sin in all its forms. We patiently explain to people why we believe certain things are opposed to the character and nature of God and therefore sinful. But when we begin to believe that we have the right, much less the authority or even the knowledge to judge or denounce a man's heart motive or heart intent before God, we have just overstepped our authority and have claimed a privilege that belongs to God alone. See, because God is unlike man in authority, God is unlike man in grace and mercy, but God is unlike man in judgment. God can judge where we cannot because God can see the hearts of men. As we close today, as we've learned about our God, a God which is unlike men in many ways, it's my hope and prayer that your reaction will be one of thanksgiving, that our God is so unlike men.
Though it is true that we cannot always understand the way God operates, and though it is true that we cannot always see those characteristics that God promises He possesses when we look at every life and every circumstance that goes on in this world, we do know enough about our God through the revealed Word of God to know without a doubt that He is trustworthy. We can trust Him to know what is best for us. We can trust Him to be faithful to the mercy that He has promised. And finally, we can trust Him to know the hearts of men and to judge the hearts of men so that we don't have to. Let me give a final illustration. Actually, for sake of time, I will not. Let me give you a final exhortation then. Though we don't always understand His ways, Though we don't always understand his thoughts. Though we don't always understand his methods. We can and indeed we must declare as Job did. In Job 13 verse 15. Though he slay me. Yet will I trust in him.